seated, and if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I have a, just a, a few sermons to you, uh, for you, I think four, particularly on the theme of leadership. I, I try to preach a couple sermons on this every year, especially in the, in the evening, as the world has such great need for Christian leadership, well, especially the church. Uh, we are all seeking to fulfill that calling and role, but especially those who are teaching, for those who are elders, those who are serving as deacons in a variety of other ways, we are seeking to uh, be suitable instruments in the Lord's hands. And so as part of my ongoing training about this time every year, we turn this evening to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, although uh, I will give you some context here for uh, reading in verse 12. Paul writing to his younger associate and fellow minister of the gospel, fellow missionary, Timothy, chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be made evident to all. Take heed, the passage for this evening now, the verse, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that that same saving word of which we just read might, through reading, through exhortation, and through doctrine, be effectual in our salvation and through us in the salvation of others. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as I said, we need godly leaders more than ever in the church, uh, in the home, at work, and in the world. Whether you're trying to influence the thinking or the development or the behavior of someone else in some way, you are seeking to have the role of leadership. When parents raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, when a friend takes the risk of confronting some moral problem in another friend, as a teacher excites the minds of his students as a nurse patiently handles the anger of the stroke victim, as a Sunday school teacher gives a lesson on some sensitive or controversial topic, or especially a, when a friend says to another friend, hey, would you like to get together and study the Bible with me? Well, in every way, good spiritual leadership is more and more needed in the home, in the church, at work, in the world, and we are all called as Christians to influence others. There is no such thing as a Christian without this calling. Consider just a few with me as we begin of the 56 one another passages in the New Testament alone. I will not read them all, but just to give you a sampling, we read this morning, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Or, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Or again, 
spur one another on toward love and good deeds, or bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, or be hospitable to one another, or receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God, and so forth. Many more. I am confident, writes Paul, concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to also to admonish or counsel one another. No man is an island, certainly no Christian man. If you feel that that is your calling in life, get over it. The truth is, we are influencing others one way or another, whether we desire to do so or not. That is to say, even the most milquetoast, lukewarm Christian who does nothing has a profound effect on other people, whether they like it or not. I mean, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea about a climate they have of lukewarmness, and he says, because they're neither hot nor cold, he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. On a scale from 1 to 10, if you rate your own zeal and commitment somewhere in the 5 to 6 range, turn up the heat. What is the excuse of the majority of people who do not worship God? It is, I hear you think, the church is full of hypocrites. That is right. That is to say, if the lives and words of God's people betray the gospel of grace, or there is just no practical difference in the Christian that is turning others away. That is saying something about the calling of our race, and even that the name of God may be blasphemed among the Gentiles, as is written. The hand, wrote Gregory, that means to make another clean must not itself be dirty. We may be setting an example, good or bad. We may be teaching things, good or bad, but... An example we are setting, things we are teaching, influencing we are doing. You can try to avoid it, but the more you avoid it, the worst job that you will be doing for the Lord. Indeed, the Bible calls us positively all to be ministers of his grace, agents of his salvation toward others. We are called to be bearers of salvation, a kingdom of priests, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, holding forth the word of life, and so forth. Now, we know that the Lord can and often does work with the poorest of instruments. Thank God that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But we are all called to be fit instruments in the Redeemer's hands as much as it depends upon us. I mean, every workman among us here knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. I happen to live in a house where we never had to have, we never had tools in a good state of repair. In fact, we often didn't have tools. I, I can't tell you how many Phillips head screws I put in with a knife or a a uh, pair of scissors, and you say, don't tell me, yes, exactly. Uh, it doesn't go in very well, and you tend to ruin your tools, and uh, it, they're just not suitable. The job can be done, but every workman knows how important it is to have good tools in a good state of repair. Michelangelo understood it so well that he made his own brushes with his own hands, and in this he gives us an illustration of the God of grace, who with special care fashions for himself, his own instruments, his servants for uh, his use, fashioning them through his word and their lives. And so selves to this process of fashioning. Robert Murray McShane once wrote this to a friend famously, how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp 
Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, he says to the minister, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In, the great, in great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success, for it is not great talents God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister, says he, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Uh, awful being you know, full of effect, right? Timothy, therefore, this pioneer, young missionary, this minister of the word to whom the letter is addressed, is charged to give himself to certain things in order that he might become such a deadly weapon to watch his life and doctrine closely in order to save both his hearers. In particular here, uh, that he might become an example to the believers, that uh, he might be able to make the, the doctrine attractive, that he would give himself to the word, to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, and so forth, meditating on these things. Okay, so in, in all of these ways, this is a charge that is given to Timothy that he might fit himself in God's hand to be an awful weapon in the hand of God. And this, therefore, is a charge that everyone who is called to leadership can take to heart. Why? Because everyone here is charged in some way of leadership. Older children to the younger. Uh, even the, you know, the smallest among you is to be a good example. Even uh, Timothy here, a young man himself, was to be called to be an example even to the older. So we are all called, you see, as Christians to serve in this leadership capacity, at helping others. But as the passage reminds us, every leader must begin with himself. Parents, the Bible addresses you first, for example, to give heed to your own spiritual condition. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. A very strong biblical emphasis that is often repeated. It's you and your children. You and your house, you and your seed, you and your descendants after you, you and your son and your daughter. The parent receives God's promises and God's way and word for himself and then for his family. And so we must all learn to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, not just for my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, it's the same for all biblical leadership. I won't weary you with quotes. But simply to say, if we are to be of great service to others, we must begin with ourselves. So the apostle gives this charge, and I'd like to cover in particular verse 16 in two parts. Uh, by the way, if you want more on this topic, Richard Baxter's whole book, The Reformed Pastor, is, is based on this one verse uh, in which he very fully uh, sets it out. And once again, any Christian and benefit from these things, but all that to say, I'm just going to be able to give you uh, a little of the idea. Much more has been written on this verse in this matter. But first, the first uh, part of the verse, uh, watching our lives to save others. Take heed to yourself, it begins. Take heed to yourself in context. 
be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, and giving yourself to doctrine and study and so forth. Well, uh, this beginning with ourselves and our lives, I think, is much more important than modern people often realize. Leaders uh, call people to follow them. Christian leaders call us to follow us as we follow Christ and to imitate our faith. Uh, Again, the modern mind tends to recoil from such a, a mind, but the master himself not only led that way, he taught his disciples to do the same. I mean, Jesus didn't say, now you go and become fishers of men. What did he say? Follow me and you shall become I will make you fishers of men, I should say. Uh, at a point, he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, uh, Mark 3. Biblical leadership is not so much about saying go as it is saying come. And therefore, our saved life is to be a great instrument in the Redeemer's hands in others' salvation. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God, so a holy Christian. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, giving his own example of this. He says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And I think, what kind of men were they? I mean, they they, they come into town, they have, what, three Sabbaths there? And they have left such an impression on these people that not only did a bunch of them believe, but that a church is formed and continues in the face of much persecution. Well, what kind of people were these? Well, he writes, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Paul writes elsewhere, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. For Christianity must be show and tell. Peter similarly writes, don't lord it over those entrusted to you, elders, but be, be examples to the flock, examples that others can follow. And the author of Hebrews writes to the church about their leaders whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. We, we need leaders whose faith we can follow. That is to say, we need people who stand out, whose, whose faith uh, ch- challenges us in a, in a, good, in a good way. Uh, people whom we admire, people whom we respect and uh, wish to be like. Um, And uh, parents, uh, again, uh, surely children you know are very rarely persuaded when they are told, I want you to do as I say, not as I do. That usually has the opposite effect. We do need to lead from the front. We need to be rather like that uh, high priest Ezra that we read devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel, right? He devoted himself to the study and to teaching it to others. Well, an essential requirement for being God's instrument of grace to others is to be this uh, holy weapon. Learn the pattern. In the church, leadership is not merely about making decisions. You notice how Paul puts it in Acts 20 in his speech to the elders. You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. And he ends his charge saying, I have shown you in every way how laboring like this that you must support the weak. And to say, you've seen how I live, 
Now I want you to live this way. Support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he charges the elders to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul again says to these Thessalonians so tenderly, this, this is why he was such a, such a contagious Christian, as one man put it. Paul says, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for his own children, having so fond an affection for you. Or the uh, NIV here, I memorized it, I loved it so much. We loved you so much, he said, that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. And he goes on to say how he exhorted and encouraged and charged each one of them as a father would his own children. You know, uh, speaking of a negative example, one of my closest friends in seminary, with whom I later interned, uh, was just an extremely effective evangelist, had uh, very good success, especially early on when I was there. Uh, later had an immoral relationship with another man's wife. He lost everything, his wife, his children, his ministry, his reputation, all his vocational education, his happiness, his peace, probably even his theological library he had to sell. Uh, and he had the best of, one of, my, of all my friends, actually, but, uh, you know, it's a shame. Uh, Proverbs 4.23, Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So I, I won't multiply passages. I hope I've given you more than enough to chew on to say that this is uh, a top priority for us every day, that we would walk with Christ ourselves. There would be something in us that is a, is a challenge um, to others in, in a way that makes, the, makes us well-suited to promote their salvation. Leaders must stand out this way, applying God's word first to themselves. Watch your life, point one. Second, we are taught here about watching our doctrine. Watch your life, take heed to yourself, and to the doctrine. Continue in them. G.I. Williamson, uh, known to some of you, uh, ex exceptional author still, still kicking, I understand, in the Midwest, a minister in the OPC, uh, he, when he was younger, he was called to a, a new church, and he visited an old member who was on his deathbed. The man's name was Orville. Uh, I've told you the story before, if you'll forget that you've heard it, okay? Um, Williamson said, Orville, are you confident that you will be with the Lord when you die? And Orville said, oh, oh yes, I, I've lived a good life. And I'm confident that the Lord will accept me. Oh, Williamson struggled. He said, Orville, how could you ever say such a thing? You sat under strong preaching for years, and all this time have you been trusting in your own righteousness. Now, you may be dying, but I'm going to shake you, man. That's damnable doctrine. You know, you're a sinner. You deserve hell and damnation. Your only hope is not your righteousness, but Christ's. Orville, you've got to repudiate your righteousness and cling to the righteousness of Christ through faith. And Orville said, oh, that's, that, that's right, Pastor. I'm, I'm sorry I said that. I, I should have never said that. I, I am a sinner, and Christ is my only hope.
Now, what's the problem here? Was Orville unsaved? Was he a, a hypocrite or an apostate or self-deceived? Why, no, certainly not. He was no doubt a sincere believer who was going to be with the Lord. The problem is that he had never thought clearly about something as basic as the gospel in order to be able to articulate it to others. Now, in his case, you say that, that's a shame, but it's not a tragedy, right? I mean, Orville's still going to be with the Lord, of course. It's not a tragedy. But you know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is Orville's children, his friends, the people he met at work, his neighbors who needed to be saved. What about all the other people in Orville's life? He was so unclear on these things himself. He was not able to speak clearly to others when asked. And so if some unbelieving neighbor were to come up to Orville and say exactly the same thing, you know, Orville, I've lived a good life and I'm confident that the Lord will accept me. Orville would say, all right, because that's what he thought about himself. Watching your doctrine, excuse me, I guess I should say, not watching your doctrine will have bad results in your life. But with others, it may well be fatal. It therefore much concerns you to learn to think and express the central truths of our holy faith with power and clarity. Then you'll be able to speak about them clearly to your children, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. Then you'll be of some great assistance to others when your fellow believers are assailed with doubts and opposition. And then you'll be able to stop the mouths of those who gainsay. It's good to remember that the scriptures say that a man may as easily go to hell for heresy as for adultery, right? Second Peter 1. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, uh, even, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed, and so forth. That is to say, it's good to have zeal, but zeal without knowledge can make you an enemy of God, an enemy to the cause of God, without you even recognizing it. And in any case, those who don't know what they believe will rarely take a stand. Well, spiritual leadership, I say, requires speaking God's truth in love, knowing what it is, and delivering it to others. In the home, parents are called, quote, diligently to teach these things to your children and to talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, lie down and rise up. For ordinary growth, there must be this constant, everyday feeding of the word of the Lord. We are to bring God's word into our hearts and then into our everyday conversations. Help others understand it, apply it, commit themselves to it. Again, uh, uh, Timothy, give yourself to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. Meditate your, on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Okay, that's the calling. Husbands, likewise, you are called in a leadership position, quote, to love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. Parents, bring their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Elders, 
able to teach, holding fast the faithful word, it says, that they may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This doesn't mean every elder needs to have tremendous speaking gifts, obviously, but every elder must be sufficiently knowledgeable about biblical truth, not only to spot false doctrine, but to set forth what the Bible says on a matter clearly. Elders are to minister the Word of God publicly through pulpit ministry or other Christian education and teaching, privately through discipleship, counseling, mentoring, and so forth. And so in that passage in Acts, Paul says, you know, brothers, how I kept back nothing that was helpful to you, but proclaimed it and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he can say, I testify to you that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Well, one more quote, if I may. I love this quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and just wanted to throw it in, but it goes well, so if you'll allow me. Martin Lloyd-Jones one of the finest preachers of the 20th century and most effective in his uh, evangelistic ministry in particular in so many ways, he asks, what is preaching? Answer, logic on fire, eloquent reason. Are these contradictions? Of course they are not. Reason concerning this truth ought to be mightily eloquent, as you see in the case of the Apostle Paul and others. It is theology on fire. And a theology that does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who's on fire. All right. So beware of fire. Uh, If you are to be a faithful, effective minister of God's word in order to communicate it to others, you need to be hot enough in order that others might likewise catch fire. Well... Our calling is to bring these both sides together, life and doctrine, show and tell. I gave this quote a couple months ago to you also, and I'll be glad to apply it here. A minister I know was speaking to a Christian that he'd met and uh, gave this account of the conversation. He he said, "I, I inquired as to the man's spiritual pilgrimage. He told me that he'd gone to Paris to study with Sartre and some of the other existentialists there hoping to find some meaning in his life, but his studies and contacts in Paris had only driven him uh, deep into despair. Through a casual, but obviously a providential, encounter with a stranger in Paris to whom he confessed his deep despair, he was advised to go to a little mountain village in Switzerland, where he would come into contact with a man who could certainly answer his questions and provide him with meaning for life. He soon found himself at Labrie, listening intently to Francis Schaeffer, asking questions and frequently raising objections to what he heard. I asked how he was brought to personal faith in Christ. It was not by the strength of the intellectual arguments which I heard, he answered. Although, if you know anything about Schaefer, you know that (laughs) the strength of the man's intellect was formidable, right? He had plenty of arguments and answers. But he says, it it, it, it was not that so much. He says, "I, I still had questions, plenty of them. But it was the love of this man, Dr. Schaefer, that touched.
touched my heart, that made me see the reality of the living Savior he talked about. He would spend hours with me. He never seemed to grow weary of my almost endless questions. I couldn't resist the love of Christ when I experienced it in this man. Uh, His life and his doctrine, having been watched closely, uh, became the means together for this man's eternal salvation. Uh, Bringing people to salvation, supporting them in their salvation, this is why we need elders for making disciples and teaching them all things that Christ has commanded. The condition in the church in any age will not rise higher than its leaders. Very, very, very rarely will you find anything like that happening. The ordinary rule is given by Richard Baxter. As you know, perhaps his ministry transformed the English town of Kidderminster. He wrote, If God would but reform the ministry and set them on their duties zealously and faithfully, the people would certainly be reformed. All churches either rise or fall as the ministry does rise or fall, not in riches or worldly grandeur, but in knowledge, zeal, and ability for their work. Uh, One more quote. Similarly, John Wilson of Dundee when he is signally, when God is signally, that is remarkably, to increase his kingdom, he will raise up and qualify ministers for the work who shall be men of large hearts, inspired by a burning love to Christ and the souls of men, inclined to prefer the good of Jerusalem above their chiefest joy. Rather challenging uh, words on this, by the way, the, uh, the whole... Uh, 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 booklet, Words to Winners of Souls by Horatius Bonner, is such a piercing uh, document, it uh, will surely stir you. Well, in conclusion, it's hard to change people. It's very hard to change the world. However, this man, Paul, he changed people, he changed the world as few men have ever done before. And he, he, he told us how he did it. This man who lived before airplanes and cars, who had to go everywhere by foot on on sailing vessel, none of which were very speedy. He didn't have a phone or amplification, and yet after these 15-some years of ministries, he left such a lasting impact on the people and on this world, not only for his time, but all time. How did he do it? Well, he took heed to himself and to the doctrine. He continued in them, and he saved both himself and his hearers. He had an unswerving commitment to the conversion and spiritual building up of others, planting and establishing them into churches where they might be able to bless others and seeing that those churches were also led by godly men. For Jesus had promised to build his church, the gates of hell notwithstanding. And Paul then gave himself to such a calling and changed the face of the world as an instrument in God's hands. He says... Uh, in, in so many ways, that uh, it is not the outward man. He says, I, I, you know, I myself am uh, rather uh, Im- uh, um, uh, not very impressive uh, in, in my appearance, uh, my, my speech contemptible, my enemies say. And uh, Timothy, you yourself have your own weakness here, your, your youth uh, that people are prone to despise. Don't worry about it, Timothy. You be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, 
in spirit, in faith, in purity. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, and your progress will not only be evident to all, you take heed to yourself and your doctrine. You continue in them, Timothy, and you will save not only yourself, but those who hear. May it be in the church of Christ, in the world, that we find ourselves flooded with more and more people rising, the high, raising the high water mark. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we desire that we should be such useful and studied instruments in your hand, and we pray that uh, you would bless such work and preparation for the spiritual salvation and building up of many. Give us grace, O Lord, uh, to proclaim the good news of this salvation, not only by word, but in deed as well, that the world may redound to your glory. We pray it for Christ.